hear God's word this morning from Esther chapter 5. I'm going to read just verses 1 to 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, now, what is your petition that will be given to you? And what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. And Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my, my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for uh, today. We're thankful for the Lord's Day, for your people, your, your people to gather, for us to gather as uh, one, as a family. We're thankful for all the ways that you invite us to come into your presence with our tears, with our weariness, Even that anger that at times burns hot against you, you invite us to come and to say it, to tell it, to confess it, and our fears, our anxieties. All of us are touched by those things this morning, God. And so we pray that your, your word would provide to us a comfort like it already has, a continual comfort of what you've done for us to, to take away our weariness, our fears, and our angers, to enter in with us, to know it. You know it, Lord. You know the depth of our hearts. You go all the way down into the deep well that we are, because you have put on flesh and dwelt among us. You know it. And so I pray that we would take all that we have today and offer it back to you, God. Have mercy on us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. You wouldn't believe it. It's like a wonderful nightmare. This is what Bill Gorton, the hard-drinking veteran in Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, describes the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. Every year at 8 a.m. on Ju uh, July uh, the 7th, six full-grown bulls accompanied with six oxen chase local men called mozos, 
and no small number of tourists. Thanks to Hemingway, in part, and his popularization of the festival. And those bulls chase these people through the towns and streets to the bull ring, where the animals are dispatched into bullfights later in the day. Now, if this ancient rite sounds dangerous, that's because it is. Since 2005, at least 78 people have been gored to death, or some to death, most of them foreign tourists, known for partying all night the night before, running bleary-eyed, drunken down unfamiliar cobblestone streets in front of fast, aggressive animals that weigh more than 1,000 pounds. And the danger is precisely the point. To hear Hemingway tell it, and to see the streets fill with approximately one million tourists each year, few things are more thrilling than trying to outrun these bulls at the possible cost of your life. Now this might, should sound ridiculous to you, but according to writer Arthur Brooks, the tradition offers each of us a lesson about exposing ourselves to a bit of danger, the real kinds, not the fake stuff, not stuff like roller coasters and haunted houses. If you need to feel more alive or increase your courage or see what you're made of, doing something that knocks you out of your safety zone, according to Brooks, might just be the solution. Perhaps that shock to the system doesn't involve running with the bulls. Maybe for you it's learning to drive a moped or an electric scooter. Or, or maybe it's saying, like, words. I, I love you. W- will you forgive me? Or maybe it's like taking the risk and making a speech in public. Every, either way, a bit of fear and danger, according to Brooks, can work magic. Now, what's the magic? What, what's the magic of risk-taking? For, for Brooks, it can enhance your courage, raise your happiness. Brooks distinguishes risks taking into two cat- categories. There's on one side brave and on the other side reckless. He says people who take risk for the right reasons are brave. And those who do so in attempt to remedy their, their low arousal are reckless. Scientists have successfully distinguished between the two like by looking at our brains, people typically who have normal kind of limbic systems, secure attachment, these people feel fear but work to overcome it. Reckless people, they have a dysregulated limbic activity. They, they fail to recognize danger, and thus they're a little heedless of risk. And many of the people, right, who are running down those streets in Pamplona are reckless. Now Hemingway wrote about running the running of the bulls because he did it. Fellow author Gertrude Stein uh, convinced him, saying it was completely invigorating. And so Hemingway took to the streets. Now, if you know anything about Hemingway's story, he was also like a sensation seeker, and he was self-destructive. Now, for those who enjoy risk and take them, whether brave or reckless. Brooks says that the happiness, the the joy, the delight they receive 
in doing the reckless or brave thing comes after, most times, the action. When you finish running with the bulls, that's when the delight sets in. While you're running scared, right? So my question for you this morning is, are you brave? Are you reckless? Are you a risk taker at all? I'm not really a risk taker. I do like to ride a motorcycle, so maybe that doesn't work. And I do like to go fast on said motorcycle. There is a thrill in doing it. But I'm not running from my motorbike to Pamplona anytime soon. What about you? Do you take risk? And if you do, why? What what makes you take a risk? And in taking it, are you brave? Are you reckless? And I want to leave with this question. What enables you? What, What enables you to find the courage to do so? Now, this leads us into Esther 5. Remember, last week we left off, Mordecai calls Esther for such a time as this to take a life or death risk in approaching the king without invitation to appeal for the life of her people. Risky, brave, reckless. I mean, beyond the king's law and her violation of sorts of that law, There is also the reality that by her very appealing to the king, as a Jew herself, she opens herself up to the edict itself. And so for Esther, there is more than one way for her to lose here by both of the king's laws and only one way for her to win through the king being merciful. Now, for honest, it seems reckless. And so she calls for a fast. And that's when we show up in chapter 5. On the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes, stands in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. And what I want you to see, because Esther calls this fast, and then on the third day shows up dressed as the queen, Esther becomes who she is, one of God's covenant people. And what does this mean? To identify as one of God's covenant people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, God said, how I carried you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. And then he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, says the Lord, and you shall be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You see, God chose Israel to be his own, his own child. Think about this. If you're a parent in this room, think about the delight that you have as a parent at the birth of your child. There was a thing going around on the Internet this week of this woman when she, her child is, like, freaking out after being born. And then they put the baby onto the mother's breast And she hears her mother's voice and the delight of this mother and her child. And immediately the baby stops. It's quiet. It's beautiful. That that delight that you have. And, And then the child grows. 
And the parent's vocation is what? To love that child. Sometimes it means moving in heaven and earth for them, defending them, favoring them. I want you to hear this, and this is point one this morning. God's favor, and I do have an outline, shock of shocks, God's favor of Esther enables her to take this risk. You you see, the fast leads her to take this risk of revelation and request. As she enters the throne room, she sees the king. She steps into this place uninvited. Imagine, imagine what she's thinking. The question, will this pay off? Is this risk going to be worth it? What's it going to cost me? I, I mean, think about the three days, right? Esther has been a beauty queen for the king, a a queen who hasn't seen the king in at least 30 days. She's a hidden Jew in the wake of this announcement, and she, she has three days eating no food, lying awake. What am I gonna do? Will I do it? And then then the second guessing comes to her, that the venturing into the unknown, the the leaving of something safe, something good for her in the hiding. She's just the, the king's queen. Think about the wrestling that she has to go through in these days. Isn't it interesting that that both queens in this story have these courageous moments where one stands up to being unveiled and the other stands up by being unveiled? As she appears before the king dressed as his queen, the thoughts of that moment, what's going to happen to me? Is this foolish Reckless, brave. Now, internalize this for a second. What about you? What risk are you mulling over right now? Or or maybe in your past, as you think back to moments where you took risk, taking a new job, going to a new calling, staying put in a place, going back to school. I I remember, y'all, when I... When I was at one of the, the jobs I loved most in the world, in Lubbock, Texas, as a campus minister, and God calling me to go to seminary. And I was 36, and I had four kids, and I had no idea how this was going to happen. Without jobs, without a place to live, thinking I'm going to be 40 probably when I'm done. And what does that mean for my future? Like, does anybody even want me? As a 40-year-old, like all that fear about taking that risk. Maybe some of you in here have adopted or are considering adoption. The the risk that's involved in, in taking on someone else's child and story and the story of that child and all the trauma maybe that that child's gone through or, or, just, or just sharing what happened to you. Your, your full vulnerable self, what your parents did to you, 
what your uncle did to you, what your classmates did to you. You're blind to the future. I want you to know that. Esther's blind to her future. She knows somewhat of her past, that God has been a faithful covenant God to Israel, but where is she? She's in Persia, exiled. She wasn't invited to go back. So so even that knowledge of her God is tenuous. And what what if you suffer a significant loss? What if something happens as you take the risk that you weren't expecting? What if you go through it and you fail? What if you regret it? Or or, or better, your child regrets it. Your spouse regrets it. And there's nothing to remedy it but shame and blame. When sleep is elusive, when anxiety gets its hands around our neck, you made the decision, you followed God's leading. When you were afraid, there's no way to make the unknown known here. So what do you do? What do you hold on to? Well, Esther's holding on to the covenant that God has made with her to life with God, that she is favored. There, there's something here. It's, it's what we pray for at City Press when someone leaves, that they would be favored, that the path would be straight, that the hills would be made low. How can you be brave, City, City Press? You can be brave when you know you are favored. To quote the Avery Brothers, which I like to do often when I talk about something like this, you are loved and you're never rejected. So decide what to be and go be it. Esther decides. She assumes her identity as a Jew, and in doing so, she enters into her divine favor. Even though up to this point she's been indifferent, now now hear this. Because some of you sit in this room and you've been mildly interested in God, mostly indifferent. That is Esther, probably Mordecai. They've kind of been living as covenant people, but not kind of. Like even to indifferent people, God God shows up. God can give favor. And the result of this favor is point number two. Esther takes up her vocation, her calling. As Mordecai told her, maybe it was for such a time as this. And the key part in seeing this is how does Esther show up? Well, well, she gets dressed. She, She puts on her royal gowns. For the first time, she enters into this narrative as one who is has authority. She's a bride in a wedding dress. I will never forget what came out the night that Danette put that wedding dress on. She's, she's meek. She's mild. She's quiet. Even now she's hating this. 
And she put that wedding dress on, and y'all, I still have cake in my eye. And that look on her face when she shoved that cake into my face, my sweet young bride turning into bridezilla over like in a minute, there was something about like, and I'm being kind of serious here because later she like barked at one of my groomsmen for like cutting in line at the buffet. She doesn't do that, y'all. Now she might think it, but to speak it and then to act upon it, like she got dressed and suddenly she felt the authority of what she was wearing, the confidence, the clothes that make the man and the woman. See, Esther has changed. The fast has ended. And this fast and the prayer and the wrestling has changed her from from this beauty queen to a queen with power and authority. In Hebrew, it literally says that she put on her royalty. No explicit mention of the robes. Even though it's reasonable to add that to the verse. She, She puts on her royalty. She's stepping into her role as the queen of Persia. Now, what we should hear with our biblical imaginations is a royal priest. The role of the priest was to put on the holy garments of God, to enter the holy place, and bring before the Lord the burdens of the people of Israel. This is what Esther's doing. She's stepping into the presence of the king. So risky, the chance that she might perish, sit into that for a moment. What is risky for you in following Jesus? In identifying with Jesus, in bearing and embodying him in the world. Because you and I are meant to be priests. What does it mean to be a priest? God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. It's the same language that the New Testament authors will call about the church. You are a kingdom of priests. All of you. Young, old, men, women. Rich, poor. What does it mean to be a priest? You are called to a life with God. That is your first vocation in the world. And then you are to serve out of that first love, out of that favor. You are to serve the world. To be a blessing. Because you've been blessed. You've been blessed with God's presence. You've been blessed with God's power. You've been blessed with God's name. You've been blessed with God's favor. You've been been blessed with righteousness you've been blessed with love you've been blessed with with unmet uh, uh, with with grace you didn't deserve you are to take all of that clothing that that garment of praise that rests over you and you are to be a blessing the priest is symbolic of blessing when they, they went before the people, they pronounced blessing. They, they carried the people of Israel before God, mediating between them and God. They bore the name of God into the world, blessing others, existing for the sake of the world. In this, Esther is a type of the church. She is, she is a, a priest, a kingdom of priests. 
putting on her royalty. She could no longer be the girl just from nowhere. She could no longer be silent. She could no longer be hiding. She had to step out in her faith because she is favored. She belongs to God. Even now, even here, we are members of the royal household. We belong to King Jesus. We, we bear his name. The New Testament says we're clothed in him, in his righteousness, in his resurrected, resurrection life. And as members, we have access to come before the throne of God at any time. We have access to all the privileges of being children of the king. To sit on his lap. To, to go before the king and make petitions. To take the risk and bear his name in the world. To be a witness as we do these things, we're coming before the Lord with access, divine favor, in prayer. Esther readies herself to see the king. And just like her, we come before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ as our royal robes of access. As we risk and bear, we embody Christ in the world. We do it in the midst of prayer to the only one that can make things actually happen. Apart from the providential, sovereign hand of God, we have no power to fulfill our calling and see real change or transformation. Now, notice that, like, the tension of that. You are still called to be, to take up the mantle of a kingdom of priests to our God and to the world. But the 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 activity in you doing this rests on God, and that's why you pray. That's why you ready yourself by praying. And what happens? By God's providence, she wins favor with the king. Literally, it reads, the king responded to Esther with grace. Fidelity, covenant love. In Jesus, God's disposition, his, his posture towards you and me is favor. It's a look of love. M many of you, when you think about the Lord, because of your story, you think when Jesus looks at you, you think he looks at you with scornfulness, with shame. That in some ways he's ashamed of you, that you bear his name. That is not the truth. It is always, 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 hear me, always, say it with me, always, always, always. It's always a look of love. It's always favor. Never shame because of Christ. God is attuned to you. Not because of your merits, or your dress, or your beauty, or your name, your surname, the name that you bring into relationship with God, not your position, not your class, but because he has chosen to set his favor upon you. How would things change for you if you believed that this is the favor you affection. Some of us live with the weight of moms and dads 
who, who could never, we have the, this hunger, this father hunger, this mother hunger, because no one ever voiced those words to us. Our parents never said they loved us, or our parents always held out a carrot for us. That's part of our story, and so we take that, and we take it to God, and we think God looks at us the same way. When the king responds with grace and asks Esther, what do you want? I will give you half my kingdom. What would you ask for? As for the nations, I will give them to you, is what God said to Jesus. It's what he says to us. What would you ask for? If you, if you knew you were highly favored, what would you ask God the king for? It's interesting, right? Esther doesn't come right out and say it. We're expecting her like to plead her cause right now. It's curious that she delays it. And so this leads to the last point. She executes her risk-taking calling with wisdom and faith. Now remember, the risk-taking begins in prayer. This isn't a blind faith move for Esther. Even, even if she's been indifferent, she knows what it means to be one of God's people. She knows how God has acted on her behalf in the past. And it has equipped her with, is, uh, she's equipped with this favor. And she moves out of that with faith. But she also does it with wisdom. Like she doesn't just, just take her faith and go, I'm going to go fight everybody. No, she's wise. Really wise. Shrewd, even. What does she do? She, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Now, now, she risked a lot to appear before the king, risking her life by such an act. Now she has access. She realizes the king has granted her favor, and she gets very, very wise. See the reversals here in Esther's two banquets. The two most powerful men in the whole world respond and come. Up until this point, Esther has come into the king's space at the king's bidding. Now she's won favor. She's entered the throne room to make a request, and the situation is reversed. Esther is now hostess to the king and Haman. Both will enter her space at her bidding. See the power shifting. And what happens at the party? King, the, king, the king, like some city press parties, likes drinking parties and eating parties. And he makes, this might make things a little bit easier for Esther, by the way. She's greasing the wheels. Like, like my kids, they are shrewd when they know how to, when to ask me for things. Like the timing, right? You guys know this. If you, you know it because you have parents and you used to do it. And you know what? You have kids because they do it to you. Like, like, when do they ask to have someone come over? When someone's there and it makes you look bad if you have to say no to them coming over. Wise, shrewd, right? And why Haman? Esther is sowing seeds of doubt about Haman's loyalty. She's inviting Haman so he might be exposed. That the true nature of his heart and his pride might be revealed. Think about, we're going to read about this next week, but Haman's going to spin. And that's because of Esther's wisdom and shrewdness in inviting him into, uh, him into this space. You see, the story is just giving us just enough. It's supposed to be interesting. 
It's supposed to be provocative. And in the final scene, um, when the eating and the drink, drinking commences, what's your wish, my queen? You have my ear. You have my kingdom. Make your request. And she asks for a second banquet. More delay. I, we don't know why she delays. It, it could be to steal up her courage. It could be she reads the room. She, she could be waiting for more information to be revealed. My friend Wayne Larson reminded me of the phrase, third time's the charm. That phrase comes from the 1800s in England where it was believed that three was the lucky number. But we also know in events like circus acrobats and magic shows, when the performer fails at a trick twice and succeeds on the third try, the audience takes like a certain delight in it. Failure, or in this case of Esther, delaying it, what we know she has to do only raises the tension and will make what happens next at the next banquet all the more fulfilling for us, the audience. And also, remember this. At the beginning, we read, after three days. That phrase is important in the Bible. The deliverance of Abraham, Jacob, Jonah, all comes when? After three days. In the Jewish tradition, the dead would come to life only after three days revive us on the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence deliverance is initiated on the third day when xerxes gives grace not death when when esther's allowed uh, given the security to touch his scepter god extends grace god extends grace by extending the cross of Jesus to the world. All would die in God's presence if not for that. Inspired on the cross, Jesus rises from the dead. Deliverance is an issue on the third day. And so maybe you're getting kind of an interplay of this in Esther's third banquet. Esther's decision to be a Jew resulted in the deliverance for others. She was transformed. Others are redeemed. But at the time, she didn't know that. Friends, you and I need a transformation of our person, our beings, our heart. Without it, we are powerless to experience true transformation. Without the work of God's Spirit, we cannot be who God has made us or called us to be. Remember, as soon as she did this, she came under the edict of death. And maybe that's the risk. Maybe the risk for you and I this morning is just embracing some level of suffering in your following of Jesus, leaving pleasure, embracing the unknown, and the pain that might come with that. How can you be brave? I want to leave you with this. My mother-in-law has this saying, it can grate under some of our skins, and yet it's so right. She says, I am God's favorite. Now imagine how that sounds, but she's right. You are God's favorite. I, I want you to internalize that, though, for a second, like my mother-in-law does. I am God's favorite, because you are. Don't forget you're God's favorite. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 18, we'll end with this, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with 
perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter says you and I were ransomed from those things, which by the idea that God would be fair and that we therefore had to be good enough. And the struggle to be good enough was holding us hostage. We were ransomed, bought, paid for, rescued, not with the stuff that has passing value like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. This is the good news this morning. This is how counterintuitive the gospel is. Are you ready? Are you ready? God is unfair. God shows partiality. Now, it's perfectly true in Acts 10, Peter says that God shows no partiality, but that God's partiality doesn't depend on your nation, your origin, or anything particular about you. But make no mistake, God shows partiality. He is partial to who? To Jesus, his son. And and the reason that's good news for us, the Bible says that everyone who believes in Jesus is clothed in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. We, we, we get to cover ourselves with the one whom God sh- shows partiality to. Showing up in our normal clothes, our sinful robes, we're in trouble. Clothed with Christ, we, we partake in all the glory that comes from being God's favorite. Getting preferential treatment, not because of who we are, but because of who ransomed us because of who paid for our hard to make yourself acceptable and always worrying that you haven't done enough. Christ's blood has rescued us from our hostage situation and made us the ones to whom God shows shows partiality. God looks at us, sees his son ransoming us with his blood and in and on account of Christ, you, one beloved and only child. Fear can be abolished. Peace can reign. Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is how you take a risk. This is how you can be brave. Remember you are God's favorite and venture on him. Venture wholly and let the peace of Christ rest upon you as sinners who have been reconciled to a holy God, ransomed, paid for. The deal is done. In Jesus, you are God's favorite. Let's pray. God, we thank you that You have uh, clothed us in Christ. I mean, you are our creator. And you have chosen and made a covenant with people, promises that you intend to fulfill. And in Christ, you have fulfilled them. So as we are clothed in him, you have fulfilled every promise to us. Your your promises are yes and amen, the Bible tells us to us. 
we can appeal to you. We can run into your throne of grace and appeal to you when we are weary and afraid, angry. So help us to do that and help us to take risk to venture on you wholly in this world, knowing that that you who did not spare your own son, how will you not freely give us all things? Help us to leave behind even good things, even precious things, for the unknown things that are not wholly unknown because of your, your name of Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.